Lord, we just ask you to bless this time as we look at this incident that we're examining and help us to see what you would have us to see from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. I introduced last week with the idea that this was one of the funniest chapters in there. We didn't get to the funny parts. Today we get to the funny parts. <laughs> uh, we looked at the beginning of this. Elijah shows himself to Obadiah, who's been, who has been taking care of 100 uh, prophets of God in two different caves. And he shows up to Obadiah, who is the governor underneath uh, Ahab. And he says, go tell Ahab that I want to see him, that I'm ready to see him. And then when he meets Ahab, it's an amazing thing. Ahab is wanting to kill this man. And he goes, okay, I want you, all the people, and the prophets of Baal, and the prophets of, of Astoroth to meet me on Mount Carmel. And Ahab says, okay. It just, that to me is a very strange thing to begin with. You know, he just says, uh, yeah, sure, whatever you say. <laughs> and goes out and calls the people to Mount Carmel and ends up bringing just the 150 prophets of Baal. All right? He does not get the 400 prophets of Astoroth up there, as we find out later on in this story. So starting in verse 21. And Elijah came and all the people and said, How long halt you between two opinions? If, God be, if the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even only I, remain of the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under it, and I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire un under. And you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. So we're going to stop there because this is... <laughs> Elijah comes before the people and Ahab has called this congregation and Elijah's the one doing all the talking. This, this just is, a, is a, an amazing story to me, kind of unbelievable in one sense. He's telling the king what to do. The king is doing it. The king wants him dead, has the army to make him dead. <laughs> and yet does everything he's told. And when they get all the people together, it's Elijah that speaks first. And you never see Ahab even talking during all of this. Uh, he goes, and he, and he talks directly to the people. How long are you going to be undecided about following God? Because the people were saying they were followers of God, but they were worshiping all the idols at the same time. And this would be the same thing we could say to many Christians. How long are you going to vacillate between doing what God says and following the world? And we have to keep this in mind. If God is God, he needs to be God, and we need to follow him in all that we do, not keep slipping back into the world. And we all tend to slip back in the world in some area, or many areas in some cases. And so he goes to the people, and it's kind of interesting, and it says, they spoke not a word. They knew that what he was saying was correct. They knew that they were trying to play both sides. And you know, nothing's worse than trying to play both sides because you know, especially when they're diametrically opposed like this, we have God, Jehovah, the king of all the world, the creator of all the world, and then you have Baal, who is the mighty thunder god, the, uh, the god of uh, fertility, the god of 
the great god of the of the of that uh, that portion of the world. So basically, saying which of the great gods are you going to serve? One of them can only be God. Both of them cannot be God. And this is the problem even when we kind of slip back and forth between trusting God and not trusting God, going into what you've said. We've got to hold what God has told us. Now, the only way we hold what God has told us is by being in the Word, being trained by, by, by a teacher and a, and a church. And if we get away from all of that, we're, we're going to get sucked into this vacillation because the world calls our, our, our soul and our flesh to it. And if we don't stay drenched in God, we're going to be pulled aside. And then Elijah starts speaking to the people, uh, to, the, to the prophets. He says, and then, oh, verse 22. And Elijah said, I, even I only, remain among the prophets of the Lord. Now we know that this is not a true statement. And we know that Elijah knows that this isn't a true statement. I think in many ways he's in a pity party at this point. He has been... Ever since he has, three and a half years earlier, said there will be no rain, he's been isolated. Yes, he's done things for God. God has spoken to him. But he has been isolated. And the worst thing that we can do as a Christian, as a believer, is get isolated. Because we'll start having a pity party. Even if we don't really leave God, we'll get in a pity party because Satan will go, well, you're the only one. How, how come you're the only one? You know, nobody else is standing for God. Why are, why are you standing for God? And I believe this is where Elijah's at. He's standing up there and he's being bold. He's doing what God says. But he's telling a lie here. A lie that he knows is a lie. <laughs> but at the same time, I don't think he's realizing when he says it. Because where he's at, with where he's at, he's, he didn't meet these hundred guys that Obadiah. Obadiah said, I've got a hundred men, that, you know, hundred prophets that I'm, I'm keeping. And, and he's saying, well, I'm the only one out here, so I must be the only one. I really believe he believes it. Huh? <laughs> the only one out of the, out of the 101, actually, because there's 100 in the caves. Um, but it is something that he says, and I truly believe he believes it when he's saying it. He definitely feels it. And this is the problem when you get away from a body of believers. And you, know, and you may be reading your Bible every day. You might even be listening to, to messages on tape and everything. But when you have nobody else giving you exhortation, building you up, you can really get to just this place. God, I'm the only one out here serving you. you know, uh, God, this is really getting, getting old, and we start getting into our emotions, and we fall away from what's going on. And so he says, I'm the only one. <laughs> and he goes, and Baal has 140 40 prophets. So he's going, it's, it's one against 140. <laughs> uh, 450, excuse me. Um, and he goes, okay, we're going to have a contest. We're going to say, let the prophets of Baal take two bullocks. They get to pick one and put it on the altar. And he very specifically says, and put no fire under it. Because right? usually in the altar there would be fire someplace, so they would pop up and, and, and though. And he goes, and I will do the same with mine, and we'll call and ask God to produce fire from heaven. Now we kind of laugh at this, but you know, Baal was the great God, the great God of of the weather, the great God of control, great God of power, he was supposed to be able to send lightning bolts and, and fire from heaven with no problem. So the prophets of Baal say, hey, our, God, our God's the God of weather. We, we're going to have this. We're going to have this no problem. Their God, their God has been weak. It hasn't been, been around. hasn't been doing anything. 
you know, yeah, we know that way back when he was supposed to have done these great miracles in Egypt, and, you know, he's done these supposed great miracles, but our God <laughs> is the one that we're worshiping. And this is where they're at. They're confident. 450 of them against one. They don't realize that one, one person on God's side is a majority. But they think they are on the right side because they truly believe their God is a God. We don't want to discount them too much. They truly believe for whatever, you know, most of them are going to believe that their God is God. And that their God is the God of power. They've been praying. They've been seeing their miracles and, and, and rewards and all of this stuff. And now Elijah comes. And they know that they've had one big problem. For three and a half years, their God of weather, controlling weather, cannot bring rain. At, at Elijah's word and his God. And yet they come in perfectly, perfectly confident that they're going to win this battle. The battle of the gods, they're going to win. Just as Pharaoh was in, in Egypt. My, our gods are going to win this battle. We can, one, of my, one of our many gods is going to beat their God. We're not sure which one yet, but one of them is going to beat it. Because there's only one on their side, and we got a whole bunch on our side. He's going to get tired because man builds gods, and they build gods like us. The gods of, of false gods are all just overly powerful human beings, overly powerful, lustful beings. All right? And this is what ends up happening. Our God is so different from us, and we go, he is in charge, and he is not like us. We are created in his image, but we are not like him, and he is not like us. All the false gods are built around man's weaknesses. The fertility gods and goddesses, the way you worship them was through having sex. And the more sex you had, the more, the more you were blessed by that god of sex. If it was a god of power and approbation, the more you gave yourself to that god, the more power you got back in return. Because they were powerful, just as you wanted to be. And if you don't believe me, go into any of the Greek mythologies and see how bitter and, and how much the gods fought with each other because they were just strong human beings in reality. Uh, our God is so different. And the scripture tells us that we become like the God we worship because the God we worship, we're worshiping them, especially if they're the false gods, because there is some sin that we want to participate in that that God needs for worship. The God of thieves, you have to steal to, to worship. You know, really, really wonderful God. Yeah, there's, like, there's, oh, there's gods for everything. Once you go into polytheism, there's, uh, polytheism, there's gods for everything. So, and the way you worship those gods is by participating in whatever they're the God of. So this is why this is kind of a battle. These guys really believe they're going to win, otherwise they wouldn't even have accepted this battle. Well, they, they're following a Baal, but they're, they're sure they're going to win. There's 450 of them to, to cry out. In the way they, and we're going to look at the way you worship their God as they go in here. Uh, so, probably. This is the point. That's the point I made. For three and a half years, their all-powerful God of weather and, and the all-powerful God of gods in their, in their pantheon cannot bring rain because of the one man who's standing across from them in the power of his God said it wasn't going to rain. And yet they're confident that they're going to win. But you know, I want to be careful. How, how often do we deceive ourselves that we're doing right when we know we're doing wrong? Yeah. But we do the same thing. 
I am just so sure that God's saying this before I've even heard him or gone to him or prayed to him and end up walking off the deep end someplace in faith. So this is where we're at with this. Um, so he says, let them bring two bullocks. Let them choose. He says, I'll let you guys choose. You, you, you pick which one you want. You know, because this is a big deal. And we don't really understand this, but the big deal was you were to offer the best to the God. So he's saying, okay, bring two bullocks. You pick the best one. I'll take the leftover. But because of my faith with God, I'm gonna, my God's going to answer. You go ahead and take the best one so that, you're not, so that your excuse is not, well, he gave us the second best offering, so we, so we lost the battle. So he went to them and said, you go, you, go, you go choose which one you want. You can choose the best one. You, can, you pick the one so that later on you're not going to be able to say, well, our God didn't answer because he gave us the second best. You know, Elijah's being very wise in all of this that he's doing, and we don't really see the wisdom until we really look at it. Um, and he says, cut it in pieces, put it, but don't put fire under it. And he says, you call on your gods and I'll call on mine. And it said, the people said, it is well spoken. They like this idea. You know, but th that's the problem. People like to see miracles. This is what happened with Jesus. Jesus wandered around ministering for four years, doing miracles. And whenever he did miracles that made people happy, he gathered a whole crowd. And then he'd say something real hard. Like, you can't, you can't follow the Father without denying yourself. You have to deny mother, father, son, daughter, and follow me. And people would leave. Jesus was constantly saying things that were hard to say, are you trusting me or are you believing in the miracles? Miracles always draw a crowd. And the miracles can be from God and can be good to draw a crowd as long as Jesus is lifted up in the middle of the miracles. If anything else is being lifted up but Jesus, it's not some place to be. If somebody's doing a healing service and they're trying to make it look like they're doing it, not the place to be. Get away from them. <laughs> they're, not, they're not the place way. If somebody's casting out demons but they're trying to lift up themselves, not the place to be. Jesus must be lifted up in the process of all of this. So Elijah goes, choose you one bullet for yourself, dress it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but don't put any fire under it. Verse 26, and they took the bullock that was given them, and they dressed it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until evening, <laughs> saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any answer, and they leaped upon the altar which they had made. All right, this is, we're getting to the funny part. This is the first part of the funny part. All right, so they... They build an altar, they put an altar there, they put the wood on it, they put the, they put the meat on it, and all day long, they start screaming out to Baal to hear them. And no listen, no, no voice, no, no fire, nothing. Uh, all day long, they're yelling, they start jumping around, leaping, dancing, jumping up on the altar. Part of this was, okay, if he's not happy with the altar, maybe he'll take one of us. Maybe one, they're literally going up there to be a human sacrifice and, and part of this jumping up on the altar saying, okay, Baal, you know, that's not enough. You want one of us. And they're going to see more, of all, more about all this, how they go about it. And all day long, from the morning till noontime, they're doing this. And then it says in verse 27, and it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. And he said, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking or he's pursuing 
or he is on a journey, or pre-eventually sleeps and must be awakened. Okay, he is taunting them. Well, you're, you're, sure, he's, you're sure he's a god. You're, you're, you're absolutely sure. Maybe, maybe he's in a deep conversation with the other gods. He is so deep in conversation, he's not hearing you. you uh, so he, um, or he is pursuing, he's moving around. He went on a trip. Okay, he, he went on a trip someplace, so he's not available. You know, he went on a journey. Or, or pre-venture, he's sleeping. Go wake him up. All right? Uh, and he's doing this all afternoon. All right? This isn't just a one-time taunt to them. Okay? He's, he's taunting them continually all afternoon. You know, you know maybe, maybe he's just so busy talking, he's not hearing you. This plays against what the Jews believe, that you could go to God at any time and give him your per- give, and he would listen to you. He was never too busy to listen. Maybe he's moving around. You know, he's too busy. Maybe he went on a trip and he just, he, he just left. You know, again, he's playing to the Jews. Right now he's, he's teasing them, but he's playing to the Jews. They've got a God who's not listening. Maybe, he's, maybe he doesn't listen. And, we've got a, you know, and technically he's saying, we've got a God that listens. Maybe they've got a God who went on vacation and didn't tell them. We've got a God that's everywhere present. All right? He's, he's taunting them with this. He went to sleep. Our God never sleeps. He's awake all the time. So this is what he's saying to them. They've got a God that obviously isn't listening, isn't doing these things. Maybe, maybe he's not a God. He's human. He's got human qualities. And in the taunt, there's this little bit of a prick to the Jewish people. Uh, our God listens to you at any time. Our God never goes on vacation. Our God never sleeps. He doesn't, doesn't say that he's saying that, but the taunt is for that very purpose. He's taunting them. He's irritating 450 uh, prophets, but he's also putting a little prick in the, the, Jew, the Jewish ears. You, know, you guys know better. You know that our God hears your calls when you call out. You know that he never sleeps. You know that he... He doesn't go on vacation. He's always available. Probably. But there's idolatry is so bad that they could have been anybody. They could have been anybody, but there's some Jewish prophet. There's some Jewish, because right now idolatry is reigning in the uh, northern kingdom. Uh, Remember, the uh, golden calf worship was started by by Jeroboam and had been going on all the time. So we've got golden calf worship, we've got Baal worship, we've got Astoroth worship. So all these people started pulling off and forgetting God, forgetting their first calling, forgetting who they were because the idols were so prevalent and so, and God was pushed down so far. Remember Jezebel, at the beginning of this, Jezebel ordered all the prophets to be killed. In the process, they're trying to kill Elijah, Elijah. But they're trying to kill all the prophets of God so that nobody will speak for God. And this is, this is a, Jezebel's worst nightmare. A prophet standing up against all the other gods and when it finally happens that he answers, that's really her worst nightmare. It's bad enough that a prophet stands up to, to challenge. And this, this is so wonderful because he is not showing any fear. He showed no fear when he stood before Ahab, who have, could have him killed at any, any moment. He's showing no fear against 450 prophets 
and Ahab in the army, uh, but the people are there. That's keeping everybody else at peace because the people have been challenged. Who is God? So if anybody moves against Elijah before the proof of that Baal is God, then it's going to cause a war and a civil unrest. So they're all aware of what's going on. They know the tenuous nature of this situation. If he had challenged the 450 prophets of Baal without the people around, it wouldn't have happened. He would have been arrested, thrown into prison, or, or executed right that moment. But here he is on this pursuit. Verse 28, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets, and blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when the midday had, was passed that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. So here we see cutting. In our day and age, people think cutting is brand new again. Cutting has always been part of worship of the demonic and the, the world of the, and the, and the uh, gods and goddesses. Always been part of it because blood was let go. And it says blood gushed. All right, these weren't little cuts. These weren't little stabs. These guys were drawing as much blood as they can, saying, we are sacrificing to you even of ourselves. And Baal had human sacrifice given to him. So they're saying, we're giving everything. But even to this day, we have people that are far from God, and they cut themselves to show control, to try to worship. They, you know, cutting has always been part of it. And all through the scriptures, we see cutting as part of the worship of these, of these false gods. And they're cutting themselves. They're letting their blood flow. And so they've been going since morning, and they're coming up to 6 o'clock at night. That's the time of the evening sacrifice. So about 12 hours, 10 to 12 hours, these guys have been screaming, dancing, uh, cutting themselves. By the time Elijah comes forward, these guys are tired. All right. They have been doing everything. They have let their blood flow. They, have been, they probably have very little voices because they're yelling and, and screaming and trying to get their God's attention. They're, they're let so much blood flow that they're lost, they're, they're, they're weak. And then in verse 30, and Elijah said to the people, and notice it, didn't, it said he didn't cry out, he didn't yell, he just spoke. He said to the people, come near unto me. And all the people came unto him. <laughs> all right. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be my name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as it would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullocks in pieces and laid them on the fire and said, Fill four barrels of water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it And he, the second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. All right. So he is just very quietly speaking. All right, people. You've, you've watched these guys jump around, holler, scream, yell, you know, all this stuff. Um, and he says, come to me. And he goes, 
he rebuilt the altar using 12 stones, one for each of the tribes. He cut up the, the meat, put it on there, and it says he dug, dug a trench around the altar that could hold two measures of seed, approximately 26 gallons. <laughs> This was no mere, he, he didn't just dig a, you know, drag a, drag a hoe around it. He literally, and I don't know that he dug that big a hole, you know, but it is sand probably. He dug something that would hold approximately 26 gallons of water. And then, after all of this done, he says, go and pour four barrels of water on the sacrifice. Now, think about this. Three and a half years, they've had no rain. Ahab has been looking for water to feed, you know, enough water to have grown grass to feed his animals. And he's saying, use 12 barrels of water on this, on this altar. And it says it filled the trench. All right? Two, two things going on here. A sacrifice of water, because there's, water is alto, overly precious, which is probably irritating Ahab completely. But what was the reason for pouring the water on the sacrifice? Huh? Well, two, two portions. Number one, to show there's no fire. We have just poured, you know, if I poured one bucket on there, you know, we might have poured it on just right to not. But we're going to pour 12. We're soaking this thing. We're going to prove there is no fire on there. Also, the fact that wet wood is harder to light off than dry wood. So he's doing two parts here. He's showing them this is going to be God that answers this prayer. He got rid of any possible fire. He got rid of the dry kindling wood by pouring water on it. And he has this big trench full of water. You know. Well, obviously, they're, not that, they're really not that far from the, from the Red Sea, uh, uh, from the Mediterranean. They're a little far from getting you know, back and forth in one day. But uh, obviously, there's a river or something nearby that they're able to pull some water from. Maybe it was a miraculous. Yeah, who knows? Maybe there was a well there that was easy enough to get but still, it's a precious thing. This water, he's saying, is a precious thing. So this is part of his sacrifice, to offer the water that is precious. And he's proving that there's no fire on it. And he's making it, just, and he's making it so that he can't just put a match in there himself and light this, light this wood. He's making sure that everybody understands that this is a miracle from God when this fire falls. Now, the fire that he describes is going to definitely be a miracle from God anyway. I mean, there's no way somebody's going to think that he put a match on it when, with what's being described. Um, and so he, he did this. He put this down. The water ran around the altar. Verse 36. And it came to pass that at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, the, the Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and, J and Israel... Let it be known this day that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then fire from the Lord fell, consumed the burnt off sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, that licked up the water and all that was in the trench. 
And when all the people saw this, they fell on their faces. <laughs> and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is, the, he is God. All right. <laughs> you had the prophets of Baal screaming, dancing, cutting themselves, going nuts for 12, 10 to 12 hours. Elijah walks up and just says, Lord God, hear me. You know, now he said it in a loud enough voice that everybody, you know, that the people could all hear him. So he's not speaking, you know, he's not, but he's not frantic. He's just speaking and projecting his voice in a very calm manner and said, God, you show these people who you are. You let fire fall and prove to them that I am your servant and that they are your people. And God sent fire. Now, this fire came from heaven, not only burnt up the meat and the wood. That would have been a miracle enough. It literally burnt the stones. And all the wood and the dust around the fire. What does this tell us about this? What do we know now? This fire was somewhere in the 4,000, 5,000 range because it literally crystallized the dust itself and burnt the rock. This was not an ordinary fire. This was God showing off to the people. All right? You, know, you think those rocks are going to last on this, on this altar? You think the dirt is okay? I am going to take... So they started with an altar and ended up with ground. <laughs> Well, I would, I'm sure it turned to glass because that's what that heat would do on those, on the, on the, on even, even if it was just dust around it, that would have been turned to glass or some form of mineral that looked like glass. Um, all right. This is God showing off. He goes, I'm not just going to take the, uh, the offering. I'm not just taking the wood. I'm taking the whole altar. And the people immediately go on their face. <laughs> All right. Prophets of Baal, we've been following you guys. You couldn't do anything for 10 hours. This God took the entire altar. <laughs> uh, how this happened, I don't know. God sent fire. You know, this is not a lightning bolt starting, starting a fire on it. This is, not, you know, this is a miraculous ball of fire that comes down from heaven and totally obliterates everything. At the exact moment and, and crystallized everything. Uh, or he somehow had a jet engine up there that blew down on it. Uh, uh, now, we could probably come up with all kinds of reasons why it happened. Uh, but we know better. It was God. And the people immediately fell down and said, uh, hey, we know who God is now. <laughs> we know who God is. We saw, we saw a great miracle. We know who, who God is. And it wasn't that guy over there. He wasn't sleeping. He didn't go on vacation. He hadn't, didn't need to be yelled at. He just needed to be asked, and he did. You know, sometimes God will do mighty, miraculous things to help us help our faith. But the key to this is he does not do them often because if that's the only reason our faith is being held, it's for the wrong reasons. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We get into his word. We spend time in his word. And he builds our faith on truth, not on activities. When we first get saved, we have an emotional high usually where I just feel light. My sins have been taken away from me. I just feel good. Every, the world is all rosy and, and sunshine. And, 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 God, and God is always going to be there and nothing ever is going to go wrong. And then Satan says, uh, well, you know, we don't know. I don't know what you were smoking or what drugs they gave you, but uh, this is life. And we go, oh, yeah, well, and this is why it's important to know God's word. This is why it's important to be in a body of Christ where we can be edified, taught, encouraged. The people had gotten away from God. They were no longer going to the temple three times a year to, be, to hear God's word. And there was no synagogues going on because Jezebel and Ahab had taken out all the, all the prophets. So there's, they're not hearing God's word. They're, they're falling deep into, into their sin. And Elijah comes and says, all right, you guys are so far. We're going so far down. God, I'm going to ask God for a miracle that's going to shock you and remind you who God is. These Jews probably weren't practicing Passover, so they weren't reminding themselves of the ten, ple pleagues, ten plagues of Egypt and how God had kept them through the 40 years of the wilderness wandering. They had totally forgotten God. They had forgotten all of their history. And God came in with a huge miracle to say, I am still the God that does miracles. In our day and age, there are so many so many pastors out there, good Christian pastors, who believes that, God, that believe that God no longer does miracles. They believe that miracles ended in the first century with the, with the disciples. It's called sensationalists, cessationists, who believe it ended. I am not one of them. I believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still does miracles. All through the Old Testament, we see the people going, well, where is the God? Gideon goes, God, if you're really God, where, is, where have you been? All these. We, we heard stories of how you did all this stuff in Egypt. We heard stories of how you fed us in the wilderness. We heard stories about how you, you, you split the, the Red Sea, how you split the River Jordan. But where have you been lately? And this is the way people get with God. We don't see him working in our lives in miraculous ways. And oftentimes we go, well, God, you must not be the same God or, or somebody's tied you up or, or you've changed. You don't, you don't love us anymore. We've, we've been so bad that you don't care about us anymore. And God is standing right there waiting. This is why I do believe we can have a revival in this world and push off the end times by 100 years or so. I don't have great hope in it because I look at what I have, but I do know that it can happen because Israel has been there so many times. Israel was in going into captivity and God sent Gideon. God sent Samson. God sent Deborah. God sent all these different uh, judges to deliver Israel when it was in the hardest period of time looking to end. God can do great things and does. He saves us. I mean, that is a great miracle if we can stay focused on what we were before we were saved and what he saved us from, holding on to what he has done. Unfortunately, we're human. And human beings are, what have you done for me lately? Our flesh is that way. You know, I know you love me. 
You know, there's the, the story about the, the, the woman who asked her husband, do you love me? He goes, yes, I told you 40 years ago. If I change my mind, I'll tell you. you know, um, but, you know, sometimes we think that's the way God is. He told us he loves us, but I haven't seen him do anything for a couple, you know, for a couple months, couple days, couple, you know, couple years. You know, God, where are you? You don't love me anymore. Now, he's all around us. As you were saying, when we first get saved, we see him everywhere. When we're on a spiritual high, we see him everywhere. Everything we do, everything that he does, we see. And then we get dull. And we're going, oh, God, you haven't done anything for me. Well, you woke me up in the morning. You paid my, you helped my bills. You kept my, you kept my car running. You, you, you kept this going. You kept this going. But we tend to forget the little blessings of God. And this is why, you know, I love the, I love the hymn, Count Your Blessings. Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. You know, and that's not just positive thinking. It is partially positive thinking. That's where positive thinking comes from. But if I'm concentrating on what God is doing, then I know that he's done it in the past. He's doing it now. He will continue doing it. And that's the great blessing that we have. God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's blessed me in the past. He is blessing me in the, in the, in the now. Maybe not greatly, just little things. But that means he will keep blessing me. And the funny thing about it is, the more he blesses us, we start to get into a place where we start thinking that it's normal. That is when we're really in trouble. When we think that God's blessings are normal part of life and not blessings, we start taking them for granted. And then we are in trouble. Satan is going to be right there to tell us about how God doesn't love us and doesn't care for us. We're going to be already in that place where we're already thinking he doesn't love us and care for us, and we're going to fall. This is why we must look around us and keep focused on, wow, God, you, get, you, you woke me up this morning. You gave me grace this morning. You gave me something out of your word this morning that was just for me for today. And the funny thing is about this is usually the, great, the, the blessings we take for granted after a while are so much greater than the things we used to think were blessings. We're going, well, God, you know, you, these are little blessings, and then he gives us bigger blessings, and we start getting to take those for granted, and we forget that he's still blessing us. As long as we stay focused on him, his blessings are going to keep getting bigger and bigger because his trials are going to get bigger and bigger so that his blessings have to be bigger. And this is the story of George Mueller. You know, if you want to read a story of somebody who learned how to pray and trust God, you've got George Mueller who started his life as somebody who tricked everybody into getting everything he wanted and cheated them. Then he started slowly just trusting God for little things. By the end of his life, he's trusting God for 10,000 pounds a month. In the 1800s, that's millions of equivalent to millions of dollars a month that he was trusting God to deliver to him every month. Not every year, every month, he was trusting God for what he needed. And he never asked. He never would ask. People had to bring it to him. And, if they, and he was the type that if they gave him money for Bibles for the missionaries, he, he needed food for the kids in the orphanage, he would not touch the Bible money even though he knew money might be coming in for the kids, he would not touch. He was that meticulous about it. 
He, sometimes he had money in the bank, but it was money earmarked for Bibles or missionaries, and he would not touch it for the kids. Or money for the kids, and he would not turn it over for the missionaries. But he had learned to trust God. And the blessings became bigger and bigger as he learned to trust God. And this is where God wants us to be. Not complacent in where we are, but be able to go say, God, okay, yep, you blessed me now. I can't wait to see what you're going to do next. I can't wait. Now, the problem with what's coming next is it comes with trials. <laughs> All right. The, the big blessing that comes next comes with a trial because you wouldn't be blessed without the trial. But we get the trial and we go, God, what are you doing? I'm, I'm supposed to be blessed. <laughs> And then you stay faithful and watch God bless in the midst of your trial. This is why Romans 8.28 is one of my favorite verses because I know that no matter what comes my way, God's got a blessing. All I have to do is be patient enough to watch and see what he's going to do. Now that may mean hard work and effort on my part, but it's still God's going to give me the blessing to get through the hard trial. And then I get through that trial He's going to give me a harder trial, so there's a bigger blessing. And he'll give me another hard trial, and then a bigger blessing. But the problem with us is we get caught in the trial, forget that God's got a blessing on his way, and start complaining or walking away. And we've all done it. I've done it myself. Walk away in the midst of the trial. God, I just, don't, I just can't trust you right now. I know that you promised that all things are going to work together for good, but God, I just, this one is just too big. I'm going to forget that 1 Corinthians 10.13 says there's no trial that's, that has overtaken me but such is common to man, but God is faithful who will not suffer me to be tempted above that which is able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. I'm going to forget Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good. I'm going to forget that God is sovereign. I'm going to forget that God loves me and walk away. And then I'm going to mope and, mope and, and pity party and God, you didn't, you didn't, uh, you didn't treat me where the, I, the way I expected to be treated. And I go into depression for a while. And God patiently waits for us. May send somebody our way to kind of slap us upside the head once in a while. May try to get the word of God into us somehow. Uh, may send a Nathan to us and say, you're, you're the man. And try to wake us up. And go, oh, you know what? I really did blow that one. God forgive me. And we then apply... Uh, 1 John 1, 9, if, I, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. He brings us right back to where we left off. And he gives us another trial to, to, to pass. And hopefully we pass that one. If we fail it, we go into depression for a while until somebody comes along, slaps us beside the head and gets us back to God <laughs> and go through the trial again. You know, so this is, this is the interesting thing. The trials that God sends our way get bigger and bigger, but the blessings get bigger and bigger also. And we need to be able to grab hold of that. God, this is a hard trial. I think, God, I think you've kind of forgotten 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and God says, no, I'm right here. I'm right here. Just trust in me. I go, are you sure this was my trial? <laughs> <laughs> but as I say, the trials are designed to break us if we try to do it in our own strength. If I try to do it myself, that trial is going to break me every time because God knows where my breaking point is and he takes me right up against that breaking point and he says, are you going to trust me or your own strength? Because nothing done in our own strength is, is worth anything. 
That's my own works. And God says, I'm taking you right up here. You have a choice. Try to do it in your own strength and fail or trust me. And our goal is to trust him. We trust him and then we see the miracle that God has out there for us. The, and maybe not even see the miracle, but others see it. But everything works out. And we might find out later on that there was a great miracle that we knew nothing about. So we are here, the people see this and they immediately fall flat on their face and say, uh, okay, we know who God is now. You know, we recognize who God is. And um, then in verse 40, And Elijah said to them, Take the prophets of all, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them. So he goes down, and I don't think he personally slew 450 of them, but he had them executed. 450 prophets of all killed. No, we, the prophets of Astora, who was Jezebel's religion, did not show up. And we're going to see later on why. She, she was not as easygoing as Ahab. Uh, in, in the two of them, both of them are evil, but Jezebel is many, many more times evil than, than Ahab. She was, she was the driving force of the evil on, on him. He's bad. The Bible says he's the worst king, but she is the driving force to keep him keep him moving the wrong direction. And it's coming up. It's coming up in the next chapter. Now don't him. But you're right. He wanted a piece of land. He's crying. He goes, what are you, the king? And she goes and deceitfully gets land for him. This is the type of woman that she is. She is evil, 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 which is why nobody calls their kids Jezebel anymore. Uh, because they don't want to associate their kids with them. All right. So he kills 450 prophets or has killed 450 prophets. The people are making a statement. And this comes from the Pentateuch. Anybody who speaks a false prophecy was to be killed. These guys are false prophets. They execute them. <laughs> All right. Ahab's not very happy at this point. His prophets just got killed. His God has been defeated. Elijah now has twice proved to him that his God is strong. There hasn't been rain for three and a half years. Now there's fire from heaven to, to consume an entire altar. And Ahab is probably a little concerned at this point. He's hitched his, hitched his trailer to the wrong, wrong horse. And he's going, there's a problem here. And verse 41, I'm going to finish this chapter. And Elijah said to Ahab, get you up, eat and drink, for, is there, a, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went down to eat and drink, and Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel, where he cast himself down on the earth, put his face between his knees, and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went and looked and, and said, There's nothing. He said, Go again. He did this seven times, and on the, came to pass on the seventh time that he said, Behold, there arises a little cloud out of the sea like a hand, man's hand. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and get you down that the rain stop you not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the, that the heaven was black and the clouds and the wind and there was a great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. All right. <laughs> he outran the chariot. Exactly. Outran the chariot. Yep. 
Now, Grant, we'll get, let me go, we'll talk more about him not running the chariot, because it may not be quite as great a big deal as it sounds, uh, but we'll get there. I mean, it's still a big deal, because those are horse-drawn and everything. So he goes down to Elijah and says, okay, I have, go, go down and get something to eat. Get off the mountain, go get something to eat. Your, your, your prophets are dead. Uh, the people now believe in God. Uh, so Elijah, uh, Ahab goes down and he eats. Elijah, meanwhile, goes to the top of the mountain. He is told Ahab it's going to rain. At this point, the sky, well, it's nighttime now because it's evening, evening time, so the stars are coming out. There's not a cloud in the sky. Nothing's going on. There is no evidence of rain. Anybody looking at him, the meteorologist would have said, this guy's nuts. There's no, no rain on the Doppler tele, uh, radar. There's no, no storms. And he starts praying. He starts praying. And he tells his, he tells his servant, go, go look out at the sea because most of the weather came from the sea inland. And he comes back on six separate occasions and says, nope, nothing out there. Seventh time he goes out and says, yeah, I, there's a little cloud out there. It's about the size of your hand. And Elijah knows that God has answered his prayer. The rain is coming. Still, think about the faith that Elijah has. It's just a little tiny cloud. <laughs> All right? They haven't had clouds for a while, so, I mean, it's better than nothing. But it's just a little cloud. And he's, he told him there's an abundance of rain coming. Uh, and, he, and he just knows that God has answered. The faith that he has is God has answered. There's a story in, in the uh, 1800s. Oh, who was the pastor? There was an evangelist pastor, that, the head of a school, and there was a long drought. And the people decided to ask him to go for prayer. He comes for prayer. He brings an umbrella. And he looks out at the crowd and says, well, I see none of you have enough faith for God to answer this prayer. He goes, but I brought my, or how many people have brought your umbrellas because I believe God's going to answer this prayer. He's the only one that didn't get soaked by the rain because he was under an umbrella when the rain came. This is where Elijah's at. His, his prayer is, I'm praying for rain. God said it was going to rain on my words. Okay, there's a cloud. Maybe just a small cloud, but there is a cloud. And he tells his servant, and this is kind of funny, he goes, he goes go down to Ahab and tell him, prepare your chariot and get down that the rain stop you not. Chariots were not good vehicles when the roads got muddy. This is why I'm saying, yes, it's a miracle that he outran the chariot, but it's not also a miracle because he's on foot and not getting bogged down in the mud. The, the road is going to turn into a muddy bog. So yes, it is a miracle. He outran the, he outran the chariot and, and Ahab had a head start. But it's not quite the big miracle that people think of, oh, somehow this man ran faster than, than the horse-drawn chariot. Oh, yes. Oh, it's, oh, yeah, I'm sure God pushed it because it's a long run. This is, you know, we're going to find out. Uh, Elijah is pretty good at running. We're going to have another place where he runs for 100 miles as well. Okay. Uh, so this guy is good at running. So, I mean, maybe he's an athlete. I don't know, but he's a runner. And he's going to outrun the chariot to the capital. Uh, but he told, he told Ahab, and probably Ahab did not get right into his chariot when he was told, because he's going to have to break camp and pack everything up and get his, get, his, get his army moving, and probably wasn't rushing his horses to get there, because there hasn't been rain for three and a half years, and he doesn't really believe that this prophet, even though this prophet said there'd be no rain, 
called fire down from heaven, probably does not believe that the rain, that an abundance of rain is coming. He probably figures I've got all night to get to, I've got all night to get there. You know, I'm looking at the skies, the stars are shining, there's not a cloud in the sky. You know, yeah, there's that little cloud way out over the Mediterranean, but, you know, who, what's going to happen? And he gets caught in a torrential downpour. But you know, you understand though, the widow of Zarephath, fed every morning by the flour and oil in the, that she had one handful, and it's not until the resurrection of her son that she says, now I really believe. Ahab doesn't believe in the first place. And even though these miracles are happening around him, he's got a hard heart that doesn't see it. Just as Pharaoh had a hard heart over ten plagues that were destroying his people, destroying his land, and it wasn't until his son was killed on the tenth plague that he finally says, okay, your God is stronger than any of my gods. Get out of my land. And then changes his mind and chases after them to, to go kill them in the wilderness. You know, hard hearts do stupid things. And even for us, if we get a hard heart between us and God, we will do stupid things. We will do un, un, unth unthought processes. We won't trust God. Ahab didn't believe him when he said it wasn't going to rain, didn't believe him that fire was going to fall from heaven, and I don't believe he really believed him that the rain was going to come that night. Now, I think he believed that rain would come, but I don't believe he believed that it was going to be there that fast. Because it's, and the indication here is that cloud showed up Elijah said, okay, good, it's happening. And the next thing you know, this storm was there. This is a supernatural storm. It isn't a storm that come, came rushing over the Mediterranean onto them. Just, I think it literally formed over them and caused a huge storm of the nature of a tropical depression or tropical storm. It doesn't talk about the wind, wind on it, but rain was pouring down. So something along the, the idea of a tropical storm or whatever they would call the equivalent in the Mediterranean Mediterranean Sea, they are getting drenched. And if you know, we know what it's like in the desert when the ground is baked and we just get an inch of rain. Yes, it turns to mud eventually, but it hits that hard baked ground and it runs like a river before it even begins to soften, the, soften that hard baked soil. So for it to get bad enough that the wheels are getting in, into this rain and getting bogged down by mud, we're talking about a storm. A storm of major magnitude comes out after he says, let there be rain. There's going to be rain. And it says, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. So yes, the hand of the Lord was on him. He moved. You know, and you had to. I mean, even, even the chariot bogging down every, every hundred feet or so still should move faster than a man running. Uh, but Elijah outruns him from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. And if you go to your map, Mount Carmel is up there, uh, up there on the coast of the Mediterranean. Jezreel is way down in the middle of, of where it says Issachar. It's approximately 25 to 30 miles away as the, as the crow flies. I mean, it's a straight line. I don't know how their roads and everything went. If you go to, if you find Mount Carmel on the ocean, go, go south, southeast and you'll find Jezreel. 
approximately 25 to 30 miles, and he outruns the chariot. He could be a marathon runner, <laughs> all right, uh, with how fast, he's, how, how fast God has moved him. And this is supernatural. Get me, don't get me wrong. It's supernatural to run 25, 30 miles uh, for somebody who's not an you know, everyday athlete running. This was a big deal. This would have been a normal trip by foot of at least two days. So he is going what would normally take two, day, two days to get there by foot, running there, beating, beating, beating Ahab with his chariot. Now, granted, even then, you, you, don't run your you wouldn't run your horses straight out either. So the horses are not going to go more than 5, 10 miles an hour for, for a long period of time. So it should have taken Ahab about 6 to 3 hours to get there, or 3 to 6 hours to get there, depending on how hard he was going to drive his horses. If he drove them real hard, he'd get there in about three. Maybe two if he really, really pushed them hard. But nobody pushes, nobody pushed their horses that hard. Now we think about, well, the horse can run about uh, 15, 20 miles an hour really hard out for short distances. And you weren't going to kill, the horses were too expensive to go push, for, push hard and try to kill them. So we figure Ahab was going to look at about a three-hour, four-hour trip to get back. He outruns them. He gets to Jezreel before Ahab does. And so news of this battle gets to the capital city before Ahab gets there. So Jezebel is going to hear about this battle, the murder of those priests, and just the very fact that her husband even gathered all the people together at the command of a prophet of God. She's got time to stew. <laughs> And she, she is an evil woman. I would not have wanted to be in Ahab's shoes when he gets back. And we're going to see some of this. They don't give us all of it, but you know what we get is, is bad enough. We know that she was not in a happy mood when he got back and heard about this prophet of God who defeated Baal. And she's going to think somehow it was a trick. Yeah. How did he trick these guys uh, and, and have this happen, and yet all of this is going to fall apart. Their entire reign is going to fall apart over the next couple chapters, and God is going to judge. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to recognize your blessings. Help us to always stay focused on you so that we do not slip and fall away and have to be chastised by you, and help us to always seek after you and follow you, knowing that there's always a remnant that's out there and following you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and that's is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. 
Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.